So why are we doing a, a series on Revelation? It might be a good question. Some people uh, are, are very intimidated by this book. I think it has it's been grossly misunderstood throughout the history of the church. And so though we're not doing the whole book, I think even these letters are it's important for us to understand. But more than just understanding what it says, these uh, are written to the guardian angel, which is a little bit confusing. It's just basically a messenger. And what the idea behind that is to say, this is really important. These words are really important. These are prophetic words to the audiences, and you should heed their warnings and advice and encouragement. It's supposed to remind us of the seriousness of what's going to happen. And this is a unique church, Philadelphia, because there's no rebuke. There's nothing that they're doing wrong. They're one of only two churches that really don't have a, re a real rebuke, just a challenge or an encouragement. And what this, I hope these, the series of these seven churches will do is to help us understand what God wants from us individually, but even more importantly, what God longs for his church to be. So by, by looking at the blessings and the curses and you know, the, the, the other sort of encouragements or warnings that we see in these passages, it helps us understand what is important to God what we should strive after, what we should strive to avoid, what it means to be faithful in that context and what it means to be faithful here and now. This is a sort of series, I think, that builds a culture of our church of who we want to be as God's people, as God's church. So let me pray for us as we jump in. God, we, today we, we pray for open hearts, uh, open minds to what your Holy Spirit wants to do through this passage of Scripture today. May the Spirit illuminate it so that we are challenged or encouraged or corrected or moved in a different direction. God, would you help us understand more deeply your love for us, your commitment to us, and all of the authority that you have. Amen. I think it was about six years ago Maybe a little bit longer now. I was going to say a couple years ago, and I realized I'm getting much older, but I, uh, I was struggling uh, with kidney stones. And it was my son Maze's third birthday, and it was a big deal. We were having a big party for him. And uh, I had a kidney stone that was so bad that they had to do what they call lithotropsy, which is they, they basically blow it up inside of your body. And it sounds worse than it actually is. Uh, and you're supposed to be kind of a minor procedure that you, you, you get better from in a matter of a day or two. For me, uh, it did not go well. I was home for a couple of days, but my pain uh, got worse and worse. I started to get uh, fevers and so much pain that I would just curl up on a, in a, in a ball on the couch, writhing in pain. And in those moments, your, your mind, you're just like, I will do anything for this pain to go away. You know, like, has anyone had that excruciating of pain before? Where you're just, I will do anything. Name it, right? You're, you're crying out to, to Jesus and uh, all sorts of things, right? It's just, it's, I'm sorry for what I've done. Like, please forgive me, right? Whatever this pain is, is terrible. So I go to the hospital the morning of uh, Maze's birthday party. And this is, like I said, a lot of people are coming over. He loves the drums. He loves to play. So they were going to have a, a concert where he got to play drums and do all these fun things at our house, all right? So it's a big deal. Your parent, you know, you want to be at your kid's birthday. So I get to the hospital, and they put me in the emergency room, and they've given me all this uh, medication, and the pain, and the, the fever, and, and everything is not going away. Uh, finally, after a couple hours, I start to get a, 
like the, an edge of the pain off, taken, taken off. And uh, I say, well, when can I go home? <laughs> My kid's birthday is like in an hour. I got to get back. And they said, oh, you're not going anywhere. And for the next like four days, I don't remember how, it was like four or five days, I was laid up in this hospital. And I mean, I was having like, they were giving me this weird medicine, medicine was giving me these hallucinations. And I mean, I'm waking up in the middle of the night so cold. Like I'm putting 15 blankets on myself. And the next minute I'm so hot where they're like, I'm asking them to put all these fans all over me. I mean, it was a nightmare. And I had kidney uh, infections, and they were, I'm not joking, it sounds like ridiculous, but everybody in my family was concerned, right? There was a lot of uncertainty about what was happening. The doctors weren't saying anything. They were just kind of saying, you're, uh, this is a kidney thing. This should be going away anytime. You'll be better by tomorrow. And there was this incredible amount of uncertainty. You start thinking about all the things that are happening in your life. What could be? What might happen? What, what's, you know, what, what's the worst case scenario? What's the, you know, it's all running through your mind. And uncertainty is a terrible place to live. It's a very difficult place. And I think all of us are either going through probably certain aspects of uncertainty in our lives right now, or we have in the past where it's caused us great distress and pain. And this church in Philadelphia is under incredible angst. They have horrible uncertainty. So they lived in this region, and it was a, a very nice region. And, met, and, and in fact, the soil uh, of the region was considered some of the best in, in all the region. And they could grow these incredible uh, uh, wine farms, or wine, what would you call that? Wine vineyards. Thank you. You know how you get up here sometimes and you just lose the word, you know? Uh, the vineyard. And, and they had these lush vineyards and they're very prosperous. And then in AD 17, they had this massive earthquake. I mean, not just a small scale earthquake, but a massive one that disrupted the entire region, killed their economy. And they basically had to restart the entire city and area. They had to restart their farms. They had to make everything new. In fact, it was so bad that the emperor of Rome, one of the most greedy people that existed, said, you don't have to pay taxes for five years. That would be nice, right? But it was that bad because they had to restart everything. No one had any money. No one had their business going. No one had their farms uh, back in order. And so this was a significant moment in time. And so because of that earthquake, you know, oftentimes after an earthquake, there are aftershocks as well. And those are, are said to have happened for almost 20 years after this major earthquake in AD 17. And they lived in this reality that another earthquake could come at any moment. Can you imagine that your entire life is essentially hanging on the fact that you're hoping each day that there isn't an earthquake? And they had no way of knowing they had no way to prepare for it. They didn't have the technology to, to build houses in a way that would withstand an earthquake. They didn't have the technology to say there might be an earthquake coming in, you know, in a few weeks or we're predicting one in a few years. There was no way to know. So their lives were on their line. Their, their jobs were on their line. Their entire city was on the line at every moment. It's almost like their lives were this ticking time bomb that they didn't know when, when it was going to happen again. The second way that they had uncertainty was through economic oppression. I told you about how the previous uh, emperor of Rome had given them five years without taxes. Well, that changed. And the emperor Domitian came and essentially ruined their economy by saying that they had to root up over half of their vineyards and replace them with other crops. And of course, these other crops were not nearly as profitable as wine, 
And so they were devastated by the fact that this emperor came in and essentially ruined their economy, forcing them to make other things with this soil that didn't produce these crops as well as it did vineyards and ultimately wine. So they had to deal with the fact that they were poor, that they were being ripped off, that the, the emperor was not being faithful to what his role should be. He only cared about Rome, the city of Rome being prosperous, and so he exalted their vineyards and kind of destroyed the, the vineyards of Philadelphia. The third thing that they were facing, so I guess what I would say before I go to the third thing, but can you imagine constantly being worried about where your help would come from? Like just never knowing what would be, be in front of you for uh, money, for life, for the future. The third thing that they were facing is religious persecution. And this kind of uh, is complicated, so I'm going to try to explain it. And it's so outside of the reality of our world, I just want you to kind of understand what's happening here. The Romans were polytheistic. That means that they believed in many gods. They worshipped many gods. And even the Roman deity was, was sort of like a god, is the way it would be described. So they would say that Caesar is Lord would be a common phrase. It'd almost be like when Americans say, God bless America. Caesar is Lord is kind of like a phrase that they would use, okay? Uh, there may be other ones that Americans use, but that's the one I could think of today. Like, you know, God bless America. It's the same way. Caesar is Lord. And it means something. It's part of who they are. And it was something that they essentially had to speak or had to observe if you were going to be part of this empire. But the Jewish people were known to be strict monotheists. And the Romans were smart. And they knew that we want these Jewish people to pay taxes and to not cause problems and not to always try to, to, to take over Rome or cause these insurrections. And so what we should do is we should just allow them to have kind of this ability to not say that. Because we know that they don't believe in many gods. So they don't have to say Caesar is Lord. They had an exemption, a religious exemption, even happened in the first century. And so what happened is Jesus uh, you know, his crew believed that he had resurrected from the dead and, the, and the, 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 they, they, they were Jews, right? The, the people that followed Jesus initially were all Jewish people. And so they didn't want to leave their synagogues because they believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that Israel had longed for. So why would they leave the place of worship that had promised that the Messiah would come and Jesus was it? They weren't trying to start some new religion. They saw Jesus as the fulfillment of their current religion that they had longed for for all these years. Well, the Jewish people didn't believe that Jesus had raised from the dead. And they certainly saw Christianity as kind of this sect. And they got sick of the Christians coming to synagogue, sharing the good news of Jesus. And so they said, essentially, the doors are shut. You can't come in. And here's the part that caused the religious persecution is that the Jewish people had the exemption. And what they would do is they'd keep track in, in detail of who was a member of their synagogue. And they would report back to the Roman government, here are all the people that are, uh, Rome, that, that, that are Jewish people that are exempt from saying Caesar is Lord or worshiping the gods of, of Rome. Well, that exemption now for all of the Christians was gone when they were kicked out of the synagogue. So you can imagine the fear that would come over a Christian now that they don't have this religious exemption, they're out on their own and they're left to themselves. This is a significant thing because if they were going to stand up for what they believed in, it could cost them their very lives. 
So Jesus is trying to communicate to this church amidst incredible uncertainty and fear. So what does Jesus say to this church that's facing uncertainty? What might Jesus say to us that are facing uncertainty in our lives even now? The first thing, we can look at verse 7. Jesus says this, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now these words all are words that you could take very plainly or you could look for a deeper meaning behind all of them. Almost a rebuke or a prophetic word of what Jesus is saying to this church and to the context that they lived in. So the first thing is that it says that uh, this is the one who is holy and true. You may have heard the term holy means set apart, holy other, Alone worthy of worship is the way that holiness was attributed to Yahweh in the Old Testament. And true is kind of this word that would mean like genuine, faithful, accurate, true. It had like a a multiple meaning. And, And I think what it's trying to do is he's trying to refute the claims of the hostile Jews that Jesus was this false Messiah. And declare that Jesus is faithful. And so he's really making two prophetic rebukes. The first thing is he's saying Jesus is genuine, the true Messiah set apart. So he's pushing back against the Jewish people that would say that you no longer are Jewish or you no longer can worship in our synagogues. He's saying Jesus is the true Messiah, the one that that the Jewish people have been longing for, and they are wrong to call me a failed Messiah or untrue. And the second way is he's saying essentially that he is faithful, he is genuine, and the emperor is not. Caesar is unfaithful. And it means that essentially that Jesus can be counted on. Where the emperor has let you down, where the emperor has taken from you, where the emperor has, is trying to essentially bankrupt you in your city, where they have oppressed you economically, where they have been unfaithful, where they have been uh, not worthy of worship, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is true. Jesus will vindicate them. Jesus will not let them down. And Jesus will reward them for their suffering. And then the next phrase is really important as well. It says, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. That's an odd phrase, right? And a lot of times when you, you come across a phrase that you just can't understand intuitively, it means it's probably referring to something that came before. Something that maybe the people of the time would automatically know. It would trigger something in their minds. We have phrases like this all the time that people would say in American history that would just trigger an event or trigger a, a speech or trigger something in our minds that, that would call us to remember. And this would trigger for them Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 22. What's happening in this story is essentially, well, I'll read the passage and then I'll tell you what's happening in the story a little bit more. It says this, In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and your hand and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key To the house of David. Hear the phrase? What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. 
Essentially, essentially with Eliakim, what's happening here is he is replacing the previous person that was over the palace or over the kingdom in Israel at that time. And so we have uh, this, this person that had been unfaithful that, that is being replaced. And Eliakim is coming in and he's receiving essentially all authority over that palace. All authority over that kingdom. And so when John writes that he sees this prophecy and, and he uses these words, the keys of the kingdom... When he says that uh, he, has the ho- he holds the key of David, which can open and shut what, whatever he wants and can close whatever he wants, he's essentially saying that Jesus holds the keys to the kingdom of God. And all authority is given to Jesus. And so these Jewish people may be kicking you out of your synagogues and refusing you the ability to worship in the way that you're used to worshiping. But you know who actually holds the keys to the kingdom? You know who actually holds the keys to the temple? Who actually holds the keys to the synagogue? It's Jesus. And whenever the New Testament recalls stories like this in the Old Testament, there's a possibility it's, it's something called the type, which means that there are all these types in the Old Testament. And people would say that Jesus is actually the, the true and greater of whatever type is in the Old Testament. So you see Jesus being the true and better David, and Jesus being the true and better Moses, Jesus being the true and better Joseph, uh, all throughout his life in different instances by what he takes action uh, to do and what he says. And in this case, it's saying Jesus is the true and better Eliakim, who holds the keys of David. Does that make sense? And he is in charge of the door. It is declaring to us that Jesus has all authority over salvation, all authority over the future. And what's significant about this is it, it, it goes on because it says in verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied me. But he goes on to, to talk about this open door. And he's essentially saying, I am providing you an open door. And what, that's a significant thing. Because Jesus, or God throughout the whole Old Testament is declaring that at one point the Gentiles and Jewish people will come and, and worship God. And essentially by, by framing this as the, an open door, essentially Jesus is saying that the, some of the Jewish people are rejecting me, but I am opening up this door to all people. This is a significant moment in salvation history. saying this door is open. This should sort of recall uh, in our, our minds um, the, the, the idea that Jesus is going to, to ultimately vindicate these people is significant as well. Jesus is promising that this door is open and they have, he has the keys of the kingdom and ultimately they will be vindicated. I was thinking about, because um, the language in here seems really harsh. He calls them the synagogue of Satan, Right? So that's one way to put it, right? Um, but essentially just saying, like, they're wrong. The Jewish people have misunderstood who the Messiah is, and they're missing Jesus. They're missing the one with the, the keys to the kingdom. And then he goes and gives this phrase in, in the, a later verse where he talks about them bowing down before the Christians. 
And that can be uh, sort of, people sometimes take it so like out of this world and say, oh, this is about another time where Jewish people bought on. I think what the illusion is kind of like what happened in the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And remember how he had the, the dreams, right? The dreams of his brothers one day uh, coming and bowing before them. Not a great dream to tell your older brothers. But he did it anyways, and they were upset, and so they beat him up. They sold him into slavery. And ultimately, that vision, that dream that he had came true. As his brothers became in need, there was a famine in the land. Joseph had been given wisdom by God to know how to plan for that and had been given great authority in Egypt. And he had the power and the ability to essentially feed his brothers and forgive his brothers. And I think what essentially he's saying is that the, the power and the authority ultimately long term is going to be for you because you are the ones that have understood who the Messiah is. You are the one that, you know, that are, are the, you've walked into this open door and the Jewish people are going to come. At one point, they're going to recognize that Jesus is the one true Messiah and Lord. So Jesus is talking a lot about vindicating the people. He's talking about this open door that anyone can, can walk through. It's interesting, in Isaiah 56, 5, I think there's an allusion to that passage as well. And it recalls this, and this is idea that there's this new temple with this new reality. And Isaiah 56, 5 says, he talks about foreigners and eunuchs will have a place and an eternal name within God's house, better than that of the Israelites. See, eunuchs had always been excluded from God's people Gentiles could come in, but they could only come in so far, right? We hear stories about the temple, and there was a limit to how far the Gentiles could, could go. And then there was a limit to how far the Jewish women could go. And then there was a limit to how far the Jewish men could go. And there was a limit to go, how far the priests could go. And only one person, the holy high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies. And essentially, I think, I believe what Jesus is declaring in this passage is that there's open season, the door's open to the kingdom of God. And that may not seem significant to you, but it has incredible significance to salvation history. And if we play this out, what it means for anyone that comes into our church, that they have an opportunity, an open door, to know the love of Jesus and to trust in him. So then Jesus goes on John goes on declaring the words of Jesus. Verse 8, he says, I know your deeds. I have placed you before an open door that no one can shut. And he says this, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I love that. I know your deeds. I know your faithfulness amidst little strength. Isn't it comforting to know that even just like the mustard seed of faith that we sometimes can have inside of us, that God sees, God is honored by that. Jesus is saying, I see it all. I see your economic oppression. I see your uncertainty about when the next natural disaster is going to happen. I see your religious persecution, and I see your faithfulness in the midst of that. This long-standing perseverance 
And you think about the costliness of being removed from the synagogue. I don't, I don't know if we realize this. When you step away from the synagogue, you, this was like Jewish life in that town. Many of them were walking away from friends and family and people that they held dear in order to follow Jesus. And faithfulness to Jesus often means being excluded from circles that mean a lot of things to us, sometimes even our family. For many people around the world, choosing Christ means losing family and friends and community and protection and money and even causes them to faith death. death. And this is what the church here in Philadelphia is facing. I love how this is the church, the one with so little power, like no, no power, is the one that doesn't have the rebuke. I think the church in America is clearly <laughs> power hungry and power is easily abused. And I think what we can learn from the scriptures is that weakness often leads to dependence upon God's power. And what we can understand is that for whatever reason, the good news of Jesus has a special concern for those that are broken, for those that are poor, for those that are on the margins, for those people that have no power. And I, I'm pretty convinced that one of the main reasons that we have all of this abuse of power is that we're maybe not supposed to have that much power at all. The reason that we keep falling prey to spiritual abuse and spiritual power is that we live in a context without much suffering. Pastors of people that, the pastor people in, in places of deep suffering, I'm not saying that there's never any sort of abuse. I'm, certain, I'm sure there certainly is. But when you're, you're pastor in places of deep suffering and suffer greatly yourself, it's hard uh, to think about pastoring in order to build a platform. It's, poss- it's, it's hard to not, to just think about the, the, the things that American pastors and leaders often think about. You just think about things entirely differently. Henry Nowen says this, I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader or individual, you could just say it doesn't have to be Christian leader, of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. That is the way Jesus came to reveal God's love. And that the quote ends there. And I think that that's where we are called to reveal God's love as well. I think the basic message to sum up what I'm trying to say is God is way more interested in faithfulness than he is success. Success by the world's standards, at least. I'm almost done. I just had a lot to say today. Uh, This is a really powerful passage. Verse 10 and 11 to follow, and there's a lot, we could go really in depth because these, a lot of these uh, verses that come are ones that are argued a lot about, it's particularly when it comes to eschatology, like what, how you view the end times. We're just not going to be able to do that today because I think the other message is more important to us, to be honest with you. But the passage goes on in verse 11. It says this, I'm coming to you soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write them on the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write their name 
write on them my new name. Jesus is saying, hold fast, that no one takes your victor's crown. I think it's interesting, like, why does Jesus essentially say, these are all the things that are promised to you, and then he says, hold fast, hold on. And it's almost like, do we have to behave in order to, like, hold on to the, the, the gifts of God? Do you, do you ever ask that question? Some people will say, well, can you essentially, like, walk away from the faith? Can you lose your salvation is how it's put a lot of ways. And the way that I think about these warnings is slightly different than that. I want to I tell you another story from the Bible that I think will help maybe frame the way that warnings, in my opinion, work m- most uh, helpfully. So Acts 27, the Apostle Paul is going to go on this ship and the ship, he tells them that they shouldn't go this particular direction, and they go there anyways. He says that if you go this direction, you're going to lose a lot of stuff. You're going to lose all your equipment. You're going to lose all your goods. It's going to be a complete disaster. Well, they choose to go that way anyways. And then on their journey of a, a couple days into it, Paul receives, essentially through his prayer, a word from God saying that no one on the ship is going to die. And so Jesus, or so Paul pronounces to the ship, he says, listen, I know you're afraid, I know you're hungry, I know you're tired, but I've heard from God, and God has said no one on the ship is going to die. And then a couple of days later come, and a couple of the, the, uh, the sailors are trying to sneak off in this lifeboat because they think that's going to be safer than whatever's ahead of them on this big boat because there's rocks ahead that they're going to bash into and die. Paul had said that they would be okay, that only the ship would be destroyed and not them, but they didn't trust Paul. And so they were going to go on this lifeboat, and Paul catches them before they leave, and he says, listen, if you go on that lifeboat, you will die. So which is it? He just said, no one's going to die, but he said, if you go on that lifeboat, you're going to die. And so I think that oftentimes the warning is the means by which you stay. Because those that are followers of Jesus heed the warning, they hear the warning, and they are drawn back into whatever God has for them. They are the ones that are going to persevere to the end. So it's not that his first promise wasn't true or his first vision wasn't true, but the warning is the means by which God uses to hold everybody in, and then everyone did live, as Paul said in the first place. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think it's helpful for me to kind of understand what these warnings are all about. The warnings help us stay faithful. So the rest of these verses are highly debated, but I want to give us three things that are promised. One that I already spoke on, but, but three things total. The first is what Jesus has promised these people if they stay faithful is that they will be vindicated. Whatever you give up or suffer or endure now, the door is open to you and you will receive the victor's crown. The term is used that Jesus is going to come soon in this passage is actually said soon. And we often interpret soon to be like very, very soon. And it really in in the scriptures means uh, without unnecessary delay. So in God's timing, what does that mean? I'm not sure. Uh, Without unnecessary delay, Jesus is coming back. So be faithful until the end is essentially what's being said. You will be vindicated. Second thing that's promised is protection. There's a lot of debate on this, on if the suffering in the the present they're going to be spared from, or if this is a future prediction. Some people have taken this to believe that uh, Jesus is promising that that Christians will be raptured up before the tribulation. And I just, though I think that there's, it's good to talk about those things. In my study, I I wouldn't interpret that passage this way. Essentially, we should take this, that God will be with us, that God will hold us fast, that God will protect us. 
in whatever tribulation that we are facing. And the third thing that he promises us is status, a new status. It says that we will be made a pillar. So that the Israelites couldn't imagine a temple without pillars, right? I mean, that's just how they built stuff. And those pillars had significance. Solomon wrote um, names on the pillars, and those names would be seen by anybody that walked in and saw them. And so when, when the promise is that they will be made a pillar, it's not just simply that their name will be on there, that they will be an integral part of the house of God, that they will be a pillar in the house of God. That they will be a resident of that holy temple in the new Jerusalem that God himself lives. So you can see, in the midst of their uncertainty, the promises of God are stability, certainty, security, assurance. Like there's this theme over and over again. He's trying to say to you, I know your lives are uncertain, but let me give you something that's unshakable, that gives you grounding, that gives you security, that gives you assurance. Everything in their lives screamed instability. The the city was a a ticking time bomb. Their insecurity uh, because uh, of their unwillingness to worship Caesar. But Jesus is saying, if you come into my house, if you come into the door that's open for you, you will be a pillar. You will be part of my temple, my family. You will be given a new name. This is the promise of Jesus to the church of Philadelphia, just as is promised us. Essentially, to sum it all up, I think this letter communicates that you can endure anything when Jesus is your everything. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying. Amen.